0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem.
1: Welcome to Ashley Talks Podcast at 20. Today we have another amazing guest, Benjamin Joff. He has lived in Asia since the year 2000 in countries like Korea and Beijing in China and of course Hong Kong. He's now in Shenzhen and Hong Kong and is a partner at Hacks which is the leading early-stage investor in hardware startups. He has invested in dozens of startups across the region and has spoken at hundreds of events across 30 countries, including South by Southwest and two TEDx Talks. He's also a guest writer for Forbes, TechCrunch, VentureBeat, and tons of other media entities. Ben, welcome to the show.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: Fantastic, Benjamin! You've done so much in such a short period of time, and all of that was done in Asia. However, you're not Asian yourself. Tell us your story.
0: Well, I, I identify as Asian. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, I'm French. I'm French, and uh, I guess the I guess the question is like, what, how did I end up like uh, being in Asia? Um, mm-hmm. I think it all started by. The fact that when I was about to graduate from, uh, from engineering, uh, I took a minor in, uh, in Japanese and strategy and I ended up doing some work, uh, some engineering work at Airbus and I wasn't too excited about it. So I decided to look at my minors, uh, Japanese and strategy, and I moved to Tokyo and then kind of stayed in the neighborhood, uh, getting gradually interested in uh, other places like Korea and then uh, curious about China. And then, uh, you know, things kept uh, being interesting, so I stayed around.
1: That's beautiful. And out of all the places where you lived, what's your favorite?
0: Uh, It's a tough question, because I think I liked each place uh, during the time I was there, because I was at a different stage in my life, uh, in my career, and uh, I was looking for different things. But if you're asking for places that I like to still visit again, uh, of course, uh, like Japan is, is like where I started and I, I speak Japanese. I feel very comfortable in Japan. Um, Hong Kong is also very nice. But I would say on the business side, it's a little less dynamic than some other places. Um, China is always crazy, but it's not necessarily the most comfortable place. <laughs> and then you have, uh, you have also uh, like all uh, Southeast Asia, you have Korea, you have uh, yeah, lots of places. So it Wonderful. depends what you're looking for. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.
1: And in terms of Hong Kong, you say business-wise, it's less dynamic. How is it less dynamic?
0: Well, Hong Kong is res- rather small place if you compare it to others in terms of population, in terms of uh, GDP. Right. And in a particular focus of hardware, uh, Hong Kong is actually not very hardware. I mean, not very startup friendly uh, because it's very expensive. Uh, there's not a whole lot of talent because of the, just the size of the place. Right. Um, and it's, uh, like it took us, like we invested in 200 hardware companies right. and only last year we invested in our first Hong Kong company.
2: Okay. So, you know,
0: one out of 200.
1: Wow. And, that's...
0: and it's not because it's bad. It's because it's, i proportional.
1: <laughs> right. Right, right, absolutely. So, how did you how did you come to that idea to actually go into business? Were you a businessman all the time? Do you come from an entrepreneurial family? Uh, where ah. did that come from?
0: Yeah. So, totally not. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, my, my parents are doctors. Uh, they work for the you know uh, public hospitals. Uh, they're oh. very uh, like uh, stable, stable type of jobs. Um, <laughs> we don't really have entrepreneurs in my family or around. So when I and actually, even entrepreneurship wasn't really a thing around the time I graduated, it was around like the first dot com boom. Yeah. It was a little bit in, you know, there was some movement in tech, but France was, was a bit behind and, uh, there wasn't really that much at the time. So I, I didn't think of entrepreneurship at that time. Um, so when I moved to Japan though, uh, there was also dot com boom. I started to work in uh, tech consulting and then I worked in telecom and I met gradually more and more entrepreneurs. And that got me interested. And then uh, I met a Japanese girl who was actually working, uh, doing trade with China. And uh, she basically decided to quit her job to go to China to start her own business. Wow. And I guess that was quite an unexpected uh, attitude. Uh, I mean, she was like a 26-year-old Japanese girl from Osaka with, you know, the no particular like like remarkable career aside from her international exposure she didn't speak Chinese and yet she she went for it and not only that but initially she wanted to start uh, an English school in, Shang- in Shanghai because she uh-huh. thought there would be a business opportunity and then she realized that the market was already, already crowded so she, she switched to do a cake shop
1: okay and, and is it successful?
0: Yeah, actually, it, 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 it had some level of success. Like, uh, Actually, she didn't want to just do a cake shop. She wanted to do a cake chain.
1: That's some girl with a really big idea.
0: Exactly. So she found uh, somebody to back her up financially. Um, she convinced a pastry chef uh, from an Osaka chain to basically license the recipes. And then off, off she went and uh a few years later, she was in uh, the Nikkei uh, Nikkei woman newspaper as one of the entrepreneurs of the year, so wow. that was kind of a you know different uh attitude to to work and career and at that time, when I was actually dating her uh, I was in like just about to change jobs, so I changed to a new job eventually uh she went to China without me, which is not a story <laughs> um, and uh, And uh, but still, uh, I mean, I was thinking about, oh, wow, it's possible to do something like that. And two years later, I got a bit tired with my job in telecom and uh, decided to leave and to go do a business training in Korea. And that was in 2003. And that was the last time I looked for a job.
1: Oh, seriously, 2003. So it's been it's been what, 15 years of being in business
0: yeah so I started doing kind of freelance consulting that uh, eventually after I moved to Beijing turned into a consulting company because I had basically a lot more and more demand for the that, the type of work I was doing, yeah. researching innovation across Japan, Korea right. and then China and then uh, basically, I was running this consulting company. Uh, we had some pretty good customers we had pretty good reputation. I started to build very big network across Asia and then gradually in the us. Started to do a lot of speaking in events because people knew nothing about Asia, and mm-hmm. I was one of the few that not only knew local markets but had some perspective on being able to compare ecosystems between you know Japan, Korea, China, Europe, US. Yeah. There's very few people who can actually do that. Yeah. Um, I built a team which was kind of a you know United Nations of Asia, if you want, with <laughs> so Japanese, Korean, Chinese consultants working together, and that was that was pretty cool. Um, and, uh, and then about, uh, five years ago, uh, Cyril, the founder of hacks, uh, had just started, um, the, their operations in Shenzhen and asked me if I wanted to take a look. And I thought, oh, Shenzhen is not, kind of terrible place. I went there a few years ago, got stolen stuff. It's a uh, really bad. Yeah. And so, oh no, it's changed a lot. It's really interesting. Um, come and take a look. There's a, there's really something happening. And, you know, in my life, I, I, I I felt a few times that something was happening, like when I yeah. was in Japan in early 2000, they were 10 years ahead in mobile. Yeah. When I went to Korea 2003, 2004, they were miles ahead in uh, online gaming and social networking. Yeah. And then I saw that again with mobile blogging, the, the world's first mobile blogging conference took place in, in Tokyo, and there were guys like Joe Ito and a few others were right. speaking there. And uh, then China also, to some extent, uh, was kind of ahead of the curve on something. Um, and then, so I went to Shenzhen. I looked around. I met with the startups. And even though I wasn't necessarily like super impressed with what I saw in terms of, uh, of products, I thought, oh, there's, there's a here's a very interesting ecosystem uh, that has global relevance and is actually opening up. And we are at the beginning of it. And it's going to get bet- better and better. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I, most of my work has been with strategy and market research. And for me, positioning is really critical. And I felt that what Cyril had done with Sean, setting up this accelerator there at that time, uh, was, was very smart. Yeah. Um, so I decided to, uh, he asked me to come and help. Initially, I thought, okay, I'll help a little bit and see uh, see what happens. And then uh, five years later, I'm still there.
1: Ha-ha. And it has not disappointed. I mean, Shenzhen is the... Uh, gem of China, right?
0: Well, it's one of the gems. Uh, probably for, for hardware, it's definitely the most amazing place in the world, not just in China. And in terms of a uh, startup activity, uh, Shenzhen is definitely uh, like up there. Uh, what's really special about Shenzhen is that not all the startups working in Shenzhen mm-hmm. are from Shenzhen or are in Shenzhen full-time. Right. And what we do is hacks bringing startups from all around the world to Shenzhen is, is probably a good illustration of that. Uh, half of our startups come from the US, but they come to Shenzhen from Silicon Valley and other places because Shenzhen allows them to do in like three, four months what would take them a year or two and cost them much more money elsewhere.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you say that Shenzhen is just one of the places uh, that are driving China forward. What, what are some other places?
0: Well, of course, Beijing. Uh, Beijing has been the center for telecom, for Internet uh, since pretty much the beginning. Um, And Beijing has the best and the largest technical universities. So the talent is there. The money is there. The power is there. And it's really important because in China, as you know, um, uh, the government uh, keeps a close eye to what's going on in the Internet (laughs) space. Uh, Shanghai also has uh, some activity. Shanghai is kind of strong in gaming, online marketing, online uh, e-commerce. Guangzhou, yep. of course, with Alibaba. Uh, Hangzhou, sorry, uh, Guangzhou also. And uh, and then there's a few like uh, you could call them like second-tier cities, even though they have the size of a you know mid, uh, like a small European country. Places like
1: Chongqing.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Fabulous, fabulous, and uh, right now. Um, where do you see the future of Asia? Just as you said, Japan used to lead uh, at a certain age in a certain area. Korea used to do cool things. Um, if you look around Asia, what is the most exciting market to you personally uh, looking forward yeah, into the future?
0: So I think just because of its scale, China uh, is the, the place in Asia. Uh, I mean, just look at the the count of unicorns, look at the venture capital deployed that China invests more money than the U.S. now in venture capital.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Look
0: at look at the what the government is doing, supporting some uh, high tech sectors uh, in AI, in robotics and automation. It's just that there's no there's no comparison to like like I think Japan uh, is, is a distant second already. (laughs) <laughs> and anybody, anyone else like Korea you know they're doing quite a lot of things they're actually arguably more dynamic than Japan uh, despite the like the, about being half the size but you know you can't compete with a, a country that's just so much bigger and has so ma- so many more resources and also incredible momentum so, uh, so, totally so that said mm-hmm. yeah that, that said some countries are, are emerging and are interesting. India is, uh, is starting to catch up not, not really catch up but kind of rise. Um and uh you can see some unicorns in India there's more and yeah. more investment there's some big companies now uh there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, enthusiasm in entrepreneurship uh including in hardware which is good for us uh Indonesia is massive but uh, the problem is that is lacking some of the basic infrastructures yeah. and some of the key elements that make an ecosystem thrive
2: right right
1: um in terms of India and Indonesia what are some of the interesting technologies? You're saying they're rising and they have, you know, a certain scale. Um, have you seen anything unique coming out of those markets so far?
0: So I'm probably not the, like the best person to ask because I only look at it from the, the hardware angle. Right. And the problem with hardware is that you need quite a lot of local resources to be able to even go to a prototype. Right. So, for example, we haven't invested in any company from Indonesia, even though we had a, a couple of Indonesian founders among other companies. Yeah, um, but uh, so we haven't really seen a whole lot of things there um, in the software space. I believe there's there's first uh, a lot of gaps to fill in those markets. So a lot right. of models that have been successful elsewhere that could be adapted successfully. Um, some models can also be a little bit, you know, tuned to the local market. Uh, uh it's not my specialty, but I'll just give you an example because I went to India actually about four years ago
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, on, a, on a three weeks kind of a, a fact-finding tour with a friend of mine. And we met some of the biggest companies there. We met uh, uh, Flipkart, we met Ola Cabs, we met uh, mm. Oyo, we met a bunch of people. And what's really interesting is to realize that when you look at the services, you're like, oh, Ola Cabs is like Uber for India. Say so yes, except when, you, when you're in America, or in many you know, more developed markets, you can already rely on a very advanced infrastructure. People have cars, people mm-hmm. have smartphones, people know their way, things are re- somewhat reliable. Payments, mm-hmm. our payments work. In India, talking with the founder of Olacabs, he was saying, yeah, actually, what, what, in India, the problem is not going from A to B. The problem is to find transportation uh, that can take you from A to B, uh, in reasonable time, in a reasonably clean car, not get lost, <laughs> and, and, and not de- in a non-dangerous way. And uh, he said it's really difficult. So there's so much demand for a service that's just clean and reliable. Uh, the problem is that there's not enough drivers. There's not enough people. And yeah. basically, what he had to do, he was going to villages to recruit people to become drivers. And the guys are like, <laughs> okay, I go to the city. I become a driver. Uh, okay, how do I do that? Say, well, you, we have this app w- that gives you some bookings, so you get in business. Say, okay, well, how do I get an app? I don't have a smartphone.
2: Okay. And they say, well, okay, well,
0: so we're going to give you the smartphone, and you pay back, and oh, you will be able to pay it back with the, with the ride. You say, okay, that's great. Sounds like a plan. Uh, where is the car? Because <laughs> I didn't have a car. And then they're like, oh, shit, yeah, you don't have a car. Oh, Okay, so they teamed up with some uh, microfinance companies so that they could finance a car. And then the guys would start driving, and then after a few years, they would actually own the car. But those assumptions, you know, if you you make those assumptions when you're Uber and you come over and you don't have this infrastructure, you're gonna fail. And uh, just like when when, um, Jack Ma was competing with eBay, he was saying, you know, eBay failed largely because they were trying to land jet fighters into rice paddies. Absolutely. That that applies to many or many other sectors. So this difficulty, the problem is not just the concept of the service, is how do you actually adapt it and operate in an infrastructure and ecosystem that's vastly different. And that's something that essentially only local guys can, can do and uh that's that's why i think they're most successful
1: absolutely absolutely um and you earlier mentioned that uh, because of your research background you've done tons of public speaking as well um and the unique point that you could make uh to make your talks extremely uh relevant was that you can compare ecosystems, not just talk about ecosystems. So if you compare Chinese and American uh, ecosystem, uh, let's say hardware-wise or startup-wise or investment-wise, whichever, you know, all-around startup scene, um, yeah. how would you how would you benchmark them? How would you compare them to each other?
0: Yeah, so um, a few years ago, I actually wrote a pretty long article for TechCrunch about this topic, about yeah. what makes the Silicon Valley. Because I was, I kept getting this question from, a, from journalists or from government people were asking, you know, how do, can we make our country like the next Silicon Valley? I'm like, yeah. okay, what is Silicon Valley? And it's a combination of elements. It's the combination of having access to a large market. It's a combination yeah. of having, uh, infrastructure for payment, for roads, for logistics, for internet. It's a combination of access to capital. Yeah, uh, from very early stage, like angel capital, all the way up to M&A's and acquisitions and IPOs. Yep. Um, so basically, all the spectrum is covered. Then it's access to talent. And talent means not just engineering talent, but also design talent, business talent, professional managers, experience, uh, experience, you know, CEOs. Um, then you have access. So so market, infra, capital, talent. And there's also an aspect of culture. And on yep. this one actually this aspect of culture uh, on communities like like uh, the like the information sharing and the 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 risk taking it took me actually a few more years to actually understand really what was the key there and that yep. uh, just just finally i think nailed it uh last year okay <laughs> so that, that took a while
1: we are very interested what is it <laughs> kind of
0: recent. i so people say okay in, in the US people are risk takers And that's why there's so many more startups and they're so successful. I think that's a lie. Yeah. Uh, People are not particularly risk takers because they, and I'll explain why. It's because their risk is actually not so high. When you're an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. if you fail, okay, maybe you lose a bit of, you live some time, you lose maybe some of your personal money, but you will find a job very quickly after. So your risk you're taking is very contained. To the time you dedicate to this project. Yeah. In addition, the experience you have, you gained, uh, through, uh, your startup actually can, is valued. So you actually end up ahead. Yeah. Whereas I had a conversation with the CEO of Hitachi, former CEO of Hitachi in Japan, uh, last year. And, um, I uh-huh. asked him, okay, uh, when you were CEO at Hitachi, if an engineer decides to leave the company, you know really good engineer really you know doing very well in the company leaves the company decides to do his own startup can he come back to hitachi if he fails
2: never
0: exactly he said he thought about it and he said well at that time we wouldn't forgive him <laughs> and you can <laughs> think imagine think about that <laughs> think about it if the company that knows this person the best that thinks he's a very valuable you know, staff is not willing to take again, uh, as a rehire,
1: a betrayal, what, do, <laughs> what,
0: what would other companies think? So basically in Japan, it's not, it, the, it's not just that you take the risk of doing a startup, that you take the risk of your entire career. Yeah. So the risk is not the same at all. So when we're talking about Jap- uh, like Japanese not being risk takers and Americans being, being risk takers, it's totally it's not, we're not comparing the same thing. So now I think the key for an ecosystem, the number one thing that makes an ecosystem grow um, is the fluidity of the job market. Is yep. Can you get a job if you fail? Yeah. That's number one. Everywhere. Yeah. And everything else um, are things you cannot really change. You cannot change the size of your market. You can change yes. the size of your ambitions. Uh, you cannot really change the, you know, access to capital. Some governments are providing like early stage funding, but that doesn't make a company better and more sustainable. Actually, sometimes it's even counterproductive because it gives them bad habits. Have uh, yeah, you heard yeah. of like grant entrepreneurs, like in Singapore ah, at the time? Ha, ha, ha. That was kind of a popular term. Yeah. just chase grants after grants. Uh, eventually, if you want to create a good company, it's about you know, uh, the, having the sustainable metrics and the, the right ambitions on the right access and the right attitude. Um, and so, yeah, for ecosystems, number one is do big companies hire startup people. That's Absolutely. probably the most important. Absolutely. And it's very valuable, actually, for them to do it, because if you're a big company on these days, everybody's talking about open innovation, but nobody from inside the big company knows the startup life, knows the startup world. If you want to break with startups, you need the bilingual people, bicultural people.
1: Yeah. And uh, looking at at, at this right now, so between China and the U.S. So, okay, U.S. are not really, uh, you know, risk takers, but it's really easy for them to get rehired. Um, Every time I open a magazine right now, like The Economist, they talk about, uh, you know, U.S. and China being a technology war like the new cold war is there. Um, do you think China or the U.S. currently have the upper hand in that war? And will that trend continue in, a, in the next decade?
0: Well, to me, it's not particularly just limited to technology. You know, In a way, all countries are at war economically uh, yeah. since a while ago. It's just a war that is not, you know, a military war, but, uh, you know, there's trade battles, there's fights to protect different markets. Uh, even though, like, uh, the U.S. is a big proponent of free trade, themselves are quite protectionist. You know, they're very careful what they allow in. So, of course, they, they want other countries to have their borders open, but themselves don't necessarily practice it. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't worry particularly, like, uh, about, like, uh, a, a specific technology war. It's part of a, a broader... Um, Let's say uh, trade uh, trade conflicts and, uh, and sovereignty of countries. Uh, uh, there's an aspect of of, of security with uh, with technology that's uh, like c- cyber security. Uh, Definitely. That's uh, in addition, but in a way, uh, information wise is not new. And uh, yeah, uh, I don't I don't see any like massive difference going so on. So do
1: you do you think China is ahead technology wise right now, or is US still ahead?
0: Uh, I guess it depends on what you look at, and it depends. Um, if you look at re- research in universities, I yeah. would say the U.S. is still uh, the place where a lot of things are really invented. But in terms of commercialization of technology, I think China is excellent. Yeah. And in terms of fundamental research, they're also getting there. So in terms of momentum and in terms of, uh, you could say, economic and uh, world impact uh China is, is growing extremely fast. And it's impl- like it tests technologies a lot faster uh, in terms of for example doing pilots with like self driving buses, autonomous yeah. shops, uh there's uh, uh face recognition inside cameras and like all sorts of things. now uh, China is actually experimenting uh very fast and developing technology at scale. Um so I think um overall the momentum is on the, the side of China. Right.
1: And you've been in business for 15 years now and you've been in research, you've been in tech, you've been in innovation and you're doing tons and tons of things. What is your passion?
0: Well, I think f- what I like is uh, understanding kind of edgy things and try to make sense of them. So uh, you could say it's kind of a, my character is probably a, around the kind of the explorer and cartographer. <laughs> um, it's it's uh, kind of what I, what I like to do. I think uh, that's in a way, what we've tried to do with hacks, uh, we try to map how c- you can map the path from an, uh, the lab, the lab to successful company. And Absolutely. On the way we discovered, you know, in the, this kind of crazy jungle, we discover where are the snakes, where are the crocodiles, where the, like the, the dangerous tribes, uh, where they're like the quicksand. And we tried to map that out so that it's easier for companies coming later because we already built some kind of a road uh, on the bit of a map. So that's, uh, I think that's what I enjoy doing.
1: Fabulous. And let's talk about hacks for a second. Um, So it's only for hardware and you are helping them to, again, execute the uh, prototype, right? Uh, To basically commercialize it. Why only hardware?
0: Yeah. So, Uh, I'll start with the second part of your question. So why only hardware? I think because when Cyril and Sean started hacks, uh, they realized that there was going to be a massive movement in making the world, the physical world, more intelligent. Uh, Mm -hmm. so software has already optimized a lot of things like software is basically the death of the middleman and optimizing processes and optimizing information flows. But if you want to actually influence the physical world, you need hardware because yeah. the physical world is hardware. So the question is, how far can you go? Um, like, how long does it take to go from something that's not connected to something that's connected to something that's intelligent to something that's autonomous? And we're gradually going along that path. And we realized that uh, there was a lot to do and that change and would play a very critical role into in, that transformation. So uh, I'd say as a strategist, I felt that there was really something really unique in terms of positioning. Mm-hmm. And that's why we still focus on hardware, even even though we call it hardware, but the key of the hardware we, we're working on is, is generally the software. Uh, that means uh, image processing, machine learning, artificial intelligence. When artificial intelligence became buzzword, we started to look at, at our portfolio, trying to figure out, okay, are we actually doing it? Yeah. And we realized probably about, a third to half of our companies had some form of AI or machine learning. Yeah. Because anytime you do a robot that's even a little bit smart, it has to have AI. It has right. to have like some image processing, some path mining, some machine learning. Uh, the health tech we're doing, uh, we started to do a lot of health tech devices uh, about two years ago. On. We're not talking about Fitbit stuff. Fitbit is like 10 years old. We're talking about <laughs> devices that- can only can track much more interesting things like tracking your digestion, tracking your emotions, tracking uh, your 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 brain. Uh, we have devices that help treat depression with brain stimulation. You know, we have a lot of really cool stuff that not only track but actually can cure people. And that means yeah. that those devices competing with with pharmaceutical companies. So mm. there's there's a lot of exciting, really exciting stuff that has to be hardware. You just can't do without because. You're acting in the physical world. You need that interface,
2: right? So that's
0: that's the second part. Why do we do hardware? And uh, I I forgot. I realized I just forgot the first part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, imagine now there is a hardware company that uh, comes up to you. How do you walk them through this process from an idea to actually manufacturing a process through your hacks ecosystem?
0: Yeah. Ah, yes. So now I remember the first part was like we help (laughs) doing prototypes. Uh, actually, we we don't just help doing prototypes. We help build a company. So that means that first thing we do is we see is that start is the project startup potential. Because there's a lot of things that are you know interesting ideas, but not necessarily good businesses or not necessarily venture backable businesses. Right. And venture backable means they have to be able to reach a, a big scale. Um, so we look at that. And if we think it's venture-backable, we're like, okay, but are you targeting, are you well-positioned? Do you have the right positioning for your product? Sometimes a lot, you know, some people coming from uh from research, for for example, they come with really interesting solutions, but they're they're not focusing on the right problem. So we help them, we like verify, check if maybe there's a better problem or a more tactical problem to start with. Um (laughs) So that's the first thing we do. Then we look at the product. We, look at, we try to strip everything that's unnecessary for the first version. Because mm-hmm. founders generally have this kind of ideal view of you know, the fantastic machine that will do a million fantastic things. <laughs> Ideally, the first product does one job, no more. Yeah. But it does one thing really well. So it's very clear for people what it's about. Um, so we work on that, and then we help them because um, typically they come from a, a place where they prototype, but they're not optimized for cost. They're not optimized for manufacturing. Maybe their message yeah. is not very clear. Their marketing is not clear. Their brand is wrong. So we actually have pretty 360 team to help from product design to uh, manufacturing processes to electronics uh, to marketing positioning messaging branding. So we do all of that. And uh, once uh, they start to understand this, then the positioning is right. Then they they can iterate very fast on prototypes thanks to the ecosystem and the support we give them. So once uh, that gets them closer to a manufacturable prototype, and then uh, they can start engaging with uh, with manufacturers and suppliers that they already learned from during the prototyping process. So the gap is not as uh, brutal between uh, prototyping and manufacturing. That's generally the biggest problem of uh, companies that don't go to Shenzhen early is that they they did prototyping somewhere. They think they're done. They go to a factory, and the factory looks at it. Everything is different. (laughs) We we can't make it. We can't make your thing, or we can't make your thing at the price you want because you designed it in a way that costs a lot of money to make. You didn't design it with the tools in mind, and that's why knowing the tools is so important. That's why China has an edge because the tools are there, whereas in America. The tools are not there anymore.
2: Yeah.
1: Now that's such a, such a good summary. Um, so. You- what shall the, I think right now, all of the companies that uh, that that are hearing us and listening to us, they just want to work with you guys. So uh, they obviously need to be scalable. They need to make sure that their product is focusing on one job only, and then you will help them do the rest of the thing. So what are some other pre-requests? I mean, you only invested in 200 companies and I'm sure thousands That's are right. applying for it. So how do you choose the right one?
0: Well well we we will know only at the end if we chose the right ones and uh, there's probably <laughs> a few that we missed that uh t- you know end up doing really well um but the our decision process in a way is a uh, very like very classic things for for you know VCs uh we look at the team uh do they have the right skills to build are they able to are they coachable uh, as well uh we look at the market potential and uh, that could be you know a tactical entry into a smaller market that grows into something bigger later uh, we look at the technology potential. Uh, we yeah. look, uh, as part of the technology, we look at the defensibility. People always ask us, "Oh, you're in China. People, must, you know, must copy uh, all the time." Yeah. And we actually haven't had real serious copy of any of our 200 companies. Wow, the why is, is that? Because mm-hmm. exactly the uh, the reason is because it's actually really hard to copy them because most of the most of the secret sauce is software or science. It's not yeah. electronics. Or a plastic box, or a simple app. So yeah. the answer to this is like if you do something simple and if you're successful, yes, you will be copied. But if you do something complicated, then uh, factories don't know how to do it. They don't know how to do, uh, you know, really complex image recognition. Even though a lot of the technology are becoming uh, more commoditized, there's still a massive gap uh, for for some some aspects of uh, of robotics, and sensing, and the uh, And uh, so that's basically what protects our startups. Um, Then uh, what else do we look at? So team,
1: market, tech.
0: And then we look at the prototype because there's a billion people with ideas, uh, but there's much fewer people who actually do something. And the prototype, in a way, tells us about 80% what we need to know. Because when we look at the prototype, we can already see what technologies are involved. We can see, you can judge your, your sense of design we can evaluate uh, basically your your abilities and we can also imagine what kind of applications the technology could have. So the prototype is really fundamental for us um, to show that the the team is capable.
1: Right, 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 right. Well, that's... That's uh, a really comprehensive list. Uh, don't get discouraged, guys. I'm speaking with our listeners right now. Don't get discouraged. Just go out there and do this. Um, another question is: a lot of people feel that there is a lot of money out there right now, and it's easy to get funded. Do you, um, uh-huh. do you, uh, you know, do you support that, or would you say it's difficult to get funded now? Is money abundant in the current startup world, or not?
0: So, uh, I'll, I'll make a little joke here. I think, uh, yeah, you can find money if you're doing blockchain, if you do an ICO. Oh my goodness. Uh, but, uh, not everybody's a blockchain. And, uh, I would say overall, yes, there's a lot of money available. The problem is that the money is very, is not easy to get.
2: Uh, yeah. it's probably
0: easier to get in China if you're Chinese with the right, you know, university or corporate track record, uh, because they're looking for projects and there's... They're a little bit more freestyle in their the way of investing. But overall, it's difficult to get money. It's always difficult. Uh, even if the money is abundant, the money is not easy to get because it's abundant. It's just, actually, it's easier to get bigger checks once you've proven stuff. So the amount of money is yeah. not necessarily the problem. The problem is getting it in the first place.
1: Okay. Okay. That's good to know. And um, what's uh, what's the, you know, expectations of VCs? So after they invested in a startup, what do they expect to get? Like every, I think, investor is sitting there and hoping to obviously mm. get the big fish, but uh, what are they really expecting of you? Uh, you know, a chunk of your business, they expect you to grow into a million dollars or a billion dollars within three years. I mean, what are those expectations there?
0: I think it depends a bit of the the stage of, um, of VC you're talking you're talking to. Um, when, when you're a late stage VC deploying uh, like a billion dollars, you, you're deploying a very few companies, and you don't necessarily expect 100x on those companies. When you deploy at yeah. very early stage, where there's a lot more casualties, uh, you definitely expect bigger returns from your winners. Yeah. So um, it all, I'd say. It's all related to the, the particular business model of the of the stage you're at. Uh, so uh, if in our case, I mean, when we invest, we invest. We're pretty much the first investors in those companies. We invest at valuations between two and three million dollars, and we invest about two hundred. Now the package is two hundred fifty thousand dollars per company. Yeah. So if if half the companies uh, don't get any return, that means the other half uh, needs to you know at least double the money. Yeah, but because investors are an asset class like every other, uh, we have to beat the market, and that means we need to make, you know, a few percent at least better than the stock the stock exchange, which is much more liquid market.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: uh, or, or real estate. So that means that uh, if you want to be a good VC, uh, you need to return ten, ideally twenty percent per year uh, overall yeah. the life of your fund and. That what that means is that you need to basically add double or triple your money over, te- over 10 years. Yeah. So t- if you want to triple your money over 10 years, on half your companies die, that means the other ones on average have to give you six times return. Yeah. And since some of them will not, that means the best ones have to give you 10 or more. So it's, yeah. it's just simple math, really.
1: Right, that's right. And what happens with those guys? I always wondered, really. So, what happens with the guys that come to you, get the money, two hundred fifty thousand US dollars, and get all that help, but then fail? They don't succeed. They're gone. They got the money. So, what? What's up with them?
0: Well, so de- again, back to back to back to ecosystems. If they're in US, they find a job. They join another startup. Everything's right. fine. Uh, us, we lost our money. Uh, we're disappointed. They're probably even (laughs) more disappointed than we are because they work a lot harder on that particular project than we do. Right. Um, for for us, it's part of, it's part of the, the, the business model. It's part of the risk we're taking. Yeah. Um, what, generally what we, we would be unhappy with is if we felt they didn't put enough effort into trying long enough. But if you put, you know, at least two, three years of effort, Right. or four years of effort, it's it's hard, kind of hard to blame an entrepreneur uh, that is kind of running out of money, running out of energy, not finding a market.
1: That's right. So if they are persistent enough, if they took the money, if they are persistent enough and they really tried hard yep. and they still failed, no hard feelings, they don't owe you anything, then you just part right. ways and uh, oh. off they go, right?
0: Yeah. Anyway, you know, because we invest in the company. We know we, they're not uh, our employees or, of course. Or, or any other form of relationship. Uh, so they have a moral obligation to do their best. If yeah. they've done that, then they fulfill the contract. And there's, there's a lot of things that are not in their control in terms of a market situation, but also even their, their ability to grow. Uh, so that's one thing that's really kind of key to understand is that as an entrepreneur, you're not supposed to have all the answers from day one. Yeah. Uh, because... There's a lot of new problems that come every day. Even as you grow your company, you have management problems you never faced before. Yeah. So the idea is that as an entrepreneur, you're embarking on new learning curves all the time. A typ- yeah. like a typical entrepreneur coming to us has very strong technical skills to prototype. And they might know something about their markets, but then they need to learn how you do prototyping in China, how you do manufacturing, how you do logistics, how you do marketing, how you do PR, how do you do fundraising. How do you do distribution? How do you talk to a Walmart? How do you talk to a Home Depot? <laughs> How do you talk to a corporate like, I don't know, Johnson Johnson? Um, yeah. And all those are learning curves. And they don't need to be excellent at any of them, but they need to be good enough so that it doesn't fail. And yeah. once the company can afford it and needs it, they can hire a specialist who will just handle that skill set. Um, so. I think that's, uh, that's something that's really important to understand. And some, some founders are able to, uh, are not only able, but also interested in learning some of the, those new skills. Yeah. Some are either not able or not interested. Uh, the people that are really good at starting things are not necessarily the people who are good at consolidating running them, things.
1: Running things, yeah. Or the yeah. people who
0: are good at running things. Uh, some people who are very creative, they get bored running things. It's the, the worst thing for them. So I think
1: would you never work with a creative founder then? I mean, imagine this guy comes in and he's got the team and all, but you know that he is the, I don't know, the visionary or what, but he is really creative and he might get bored in in a year from now. Would you never work with them or would you force them to come up with a management committee?
0: So uh, I'd say, you know, actually having some very creative people is really useful. And actually most startups are by creative people. Yeah, Uh, sometimes by like business people who see a business opportunity, but overall, it's generally creative people. Uh, But uh, what we do is actually one thing we do at Hacks on that SOSV, which is the funder that finances Hacks on some of our other branches, is that we actually uh, help founders profile themselves so that they understand their their mind and their decision process. We use a, a, a method called the HBDI Profile uh which allows H P D I uh h uh, h b d i
1: Oh uh uh-huh.
0: and uh that helps to understand your preferences in decision making so tip there's kind of four main uh aspects one is the creativity and entrepreneurial spirit
2: yeah the other
0: is kind of analytical mindset yeah third one is uh the organizational organizational um, right. Like more like processes driven. And the last one is more the emotional type people, or the communication yeah. type people, yeah. people, person. Most founders in our hardware programs are either like have a mix of very entrepreneurial, very analytical styles. Yeah. And generally they're, they're quite weak at organizational and communication.
1: Okay.
2: Okay. And
0: that's actually a problem uh, because that means <laughs> that you have this kind of key creative chaos but then i can tell you that when you start to do manufacturing and logistics it's you have to be extremely organized so either one of the founders has the skill set or developed the skill set or they really need to hire somebody who's not only good at it but kind of likes this and strives at it and same for communication so we try to improve their communication abilities but if they're not strong communicators sometimes it's useful to have somebody join um, so that's actually kind of a kind of a side note there is that we run uh, some uh, some analysis of the among the, the founders in the SOSV portfolio. And we have about a thousand founders, and yeah. about a quarter of them are female founders. Wow. Um, a lot of them actually in, uh, in the biology branch uh, we run in San Francisco and London and uh, as well as in software and in the food branch uh, called FoodX that's running in New York. Yeah. So we have in proportion, we have a bit less in the hardware. And what we found is that many of those female founders are actually really good at organization and communication.
1: Yeah. So, so are really, they more successful down the line? Do you do you see them more successful or not? Uh,
0: so I would say they they also embrace, um, I'd say, types of businesses that require to be better at communication. If you do B2B hardware, you don't necessarily need to be a fantastic communicator. I mean, it helps, but it's not as key as if you do you know, a consumer website. Yeah. So uh, it's difficult to compare the success, but I think they have the skill set that's relevant to uh, to what they're doing, and I think those skill set could be actually really useful in other fields where they're more rare.
1: Yeah absolutely and i love it how you mentioned you know female founders and women in tech um right now there's so much talk about you know gender equality in business in particular and technology being a big uh, topic as well um what 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 do you feel i mean china is very unique right there are so many women in business there and uh, yeah. i keep repeating that again and again that 114 out of 147 uh global uh, self-made fee- female entrepreneurs and billionaires were made in China. Can you imagine? 114 out of wow. 147. Um, so, what do you think about girls in tech, uh, huh. women as in startups, women running yeah. uh, businesses, and what do you think about China in particular?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, so I have to be very careful there because it's very hot potato topic. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but, nah, it's uh, a casual chat. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, it's on the internet. Um, so, um, let me, let me phrase it properly. Uh, (laughs) so I think, yes, China in many ways is more egalitarian regarding gender. And that's probably one of the side effects of communism, uh, like Chinese style communism, at least. Um, so I think this is something that's quite unique. And uh, is illustrated, as you said, by the number of, uh, like, self-made billionaires, uh, female billionaires and entrepreneurs. Uh, like, I think, uh, I don't have statistics, but I heard stuff like half the factories in Shenzhen are owned by women.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you know that in Hong Kong, most of the VCs are, again, mm-hmm. they are headed by women. Most of the VCs, and those women are mainland Chinese. There's been even an article in Spiegel, a German, a German magazine, about it a couple yeah. of weeks back. I was so shocked. Positively surprised.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, the like exploring the reasons is also kind of interesting and some of them are probably uh, possible to learn from and some not so much. Uh, to talk about female founders, I think, I mean, overall, you know, people can do whatever they want um, uh, and, uh, you know, if female, like women, want to start companies, they definitely like should do it for sure. Uh, and uh, we found that, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned uh, women uh, being um, uh, in, within our portfolio are comparatively uh, more skilled at uh, organization and communication things, but we also have seen like extremely analytical, uh, extremely uh, like entrepreneurial uh, women. Actually, most of the women in our portfolio are entrepreneurial because they're entrepreneurs. Um,
1: and you mentioned so, um, it's uh, a quarter, quarter of your startups, right? So out of 200, there's basically 50. More or less, fifty are uh, headed by uh, women.
0: Uh, yeah, they female. They have uh, female co-founders. That's right.
1: Okay, 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 perfect.
0: Um, so that's uh, we're actually one of the top ranking in the world in terms of our investment in female founders. But uh, the, the way I look at it is that we invest in the best teams for for what they do, and to us, yeah, it's, it's maybe a strange thing to say, but it doesn't matter if you're yeah. female or male.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. Absolutely. Um, another question would be more on your entrepreneurship journey. I mean, 15 years in business, mm. you've done consulting, you've done research, you've done, uh, you know, other companies and ventures. Uh, what were some of your darkest hours? Or has it always been so happy and easy and successful? Um, Tell me about the darkest hour, one or two, and what have you learned from it? And how have you basically jumped out of it to be where you are today?
0: Uh, Interesting question. The darkest hours. I think the most difficult times is the times where you start to lose interest in what you're doing.
2: Exactly. And
0: you're not quite sure yet what you want to do next. Um, and those are kind of difficult transition times. Um, but I've learned over, let's see, over the years to, to, kind of build confidence that I should typically keep interest, like keep an eye of, on new things and keep interested in things. And overall, what's, gui- what's been guiding my, my decision is it's pretty much the gut feel that I like it. I'm interested. And then things will s- kind of sort themselves out. Um, I think a lot of people end up quite miserable because they make very uh, rational, intellectual decisions, but those are not the ones making you happy down the road. They can make you wealthy. They can make you comfortable <laughs> because that's what your brain is, uh, is telling you to do. Uh, I think as well, uh, people shouldn't make too emotional decisions because you, you have no control really over your emotions. You don't know, like, uh, you know, even you, if you like something, you don't know if you're going to like it tomorrow. Uh, yeah. So. I think the gut feel is a much more subtle um, to identify, but it's actually the most important, most important and the best for decision making. If I, if I would sum it up, if you, if you um, make decisions with your guts, you don't necessarily make the best decisions, but you make decisions you don't regret. And I think for me it's a win because that gives you peace of mind and uh, on some form of happiness.
1: No, that's, that's a beautiful advice. And what was that dark hour that you would like to share with us? A p- specific story. Tell us a story Mm. of uh, you being really down and probably feeling like, you know what, I really want to give up. It's a really shitty place where I am right now and I just want to go Uh, back to work. I just want to, you know, I I just want to be, mm. you know, uh, working nine to five or I just want to, you know, hide Um. away on a tropical island and never be in this business again because this is Uh some messed up stuff.
0: (laughs) Or maybe you've never uh, had those
1: before. Maybe in 15 years you never got to that stage.
0: Yeah, uh, let me think. Well, I was working, uh, so I worked many years in consulting and then, um, I started to be more and more interested in startups. And I decided to actually start uh, my own startup project. Uh-huh. And I actually looked, I went to Silicon Valley. I spent some time there. Talked to a bunch of people, uh, worked on my concept. And I was really motivated and I realized I couldn't afford really to hire people in Silicon Valley. And they didn't have a, a network I could uh, I could easily tap into and that building it would, would be difficult. So I decided to go uh, first to try to hire people in Singapore to work with me. And then I realized I couldn't find the, the right type of people in Singapore. So I ended up, ended up in Malaysia. Yeah. Because I thought, okay, Malaysia, uh, okay, they sp- speak English, many people. Uh, there's a ta- there's a tech scene. And if I'm there, there's actually not that many startups. So I might be able to actually find really good people to work with, which I did. And then as I was working in Malaysia, you know, we developed a prototype, we launched it. And then I went back to us and I discussed with some more people. And I realized that even though I was really motivated by what I was building, uh, the business model and the user acquisition uh, process were very weak. Yeah. So if you don't have a good business model, if you don't have a good way to acquire users, you'd better get a lot of funding, and you have to be ready for many, many years of hard work trying to figure right. out, figure out those key elements. Yeah. So I went back to Malaysia, and I realized, damn, this is really not really going anywhere. I'm doing this <laughs> kind of a, because I like it, not because it's a business, and that, uh, and you have to be sustainable to actually build something like long term. Right. So. At that time, that was actually a little bit difficult because I decided to stop the project in Malaysia, but I wasn't really excited about going to do consulting again. And I wasn't sure where to go next because I was okay in Kuala Lumpur. And then yeah. what do I do? Do I go to China again? I'm not so motivated. Do I go to Singapore? Do I go to the US? And to do what? So at that time, I wasn't too sure what to do. And then some friends of mine who were running a gaming company in Beijing, uh, Mm I had invested in, told me, actually, uh, you know, we're trying to raise some funding and we need some help. And uh, and I thought, okay, well, I like those guys. I've been helping them since the beginning. And I decided to go back to Beijing. And so I helped them kind of as a kind of project for for a few months. And then uh, after that, I was like, okay, enough of Beijing. Uh, Time to think of something else. I went back to, and I was about to go back to, to France to take a, a bit of a break and, and think. And that's when Hacks uh, the, contacted me and said, hey, come and take a look.
2: Wow, so I went what? to take a look. Yeah. And
0: then, uh, yeah, pretty much a uh, few months later, I was, uh, was in Shenzhen with, uh, with my suitcase to try to figure out uh, what, what the hell I was going to do with hardware.
1: Yeah, that's, that's such a story. And w- what is the learning? So for those people that are really going right now, sitting somewhere in Asia or across the globe and going through their dark hour of doubt and not knowing what to do and how to move forward, what would be your advice to them?
0: Um, yeah, so the advice, uh, good, uh, good point. Um, I would say just keep eyes open. Uh, keep... Um, like... Keep meeting people, keep following your interests and uh, apply yourself. So don't just, you know, get interested in things or don't do anything. Try to do things and <laughs> you, you don't know because you don't know where they lead you. Like, are you asking, oh, where you an entrepreneur? I was like, no, never, never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. Um, but I kept <laughs> bumping into entrepreneurs and eventually I became kind of one. And now I'm kind of a, you know, part of a team, uh, which I, I didn't think I would be again uh, because I thought I would you know, keep running my own thing. So How did, yeah. don't don't worry too much about like your your status and uh, try to keep learning things you're interested in. Uh, ideally, and that, that's also kind of a strength, is that if you're quite frugal or kind of low maintenance, uh, it's also a lot easier. Uh, because if, like I started in Japan, and in Japan, I was you know was my my first job. I wasn't getting like a crazy salary, and also the 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 housing is really small in Japan. So I got used to uh, kind of lower levels of comfort. So having uh, you know, um, being able to be comfort- to be okay with low level of comfort um, means that uh, you you gives you a lot of freedom.
1: Yeah, yeah. And mentality, it's it's a different mentality. You know, you're going to be fine, and you don't need certain things, and you know how to pull through. That's beautiful. Yeah. What is your favorite? I, I actually, I
0: have. Yeah. I I, I can actually uh, I have a little litmus test to actually evaluate if people are able to make their own decisions, um, get stuck in bad situations. Uh, uh, I I call it the the movie test. So (laughs) I'll I'll try it with you. Um, Have you ever gone to the cinema alone? Uh, She's thinking, answer is no. (laughs) Maybe
1: I have, but it must have been a long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that means
0: you're always compromising on your movie decisions. Or you're lucky enough to always find the right person to do it with you, which might be another pro- another attitude, which is which is good. Um, so that's one thing. The second yeah. question, as kind of follow up, have you ever left a movie in the cinema in yes. the middle?
1: Oh the yes, yes I have. Right. Oh yes.
0: You're part of a very small minority, and that means that uh, you don't get stuck in situations that you don't like, and that's. And a, I even that's a left a theater story. play
1: uh, several times, yeah, which was horrific. Yeah.
0: So it's um, so that those are kind of uh, interesting things to to think about uh, in terms of uh, how you make your decision. So, uh, like for example, maybe in your case, you decide on a movie and then you find somebody to go with you.
1: That yeah, will fit of the course. Movie
0: because you like of to course. go with someone.
1: And in but China, we say Now you need people with you to make it more fun. So of course, you decide on yeah. the movie and then you convince everybody to come with you.
0: <laughs> so, that, so that's so uh, that's that's that's. One one approach, but I think a lot of people, but like if they're in a couple in particular, they discuss what kind of movie they will watch together and so compromise. So it's, Mm. it's, it's okay in many cases, but if there's, let's say there's a movie you really want to watch and there's no interest for somebody else, or you can't find anyone around you to watch it, then that's a problem. So. Uh anyway that's kind of just a, a, a quick test but uh I would say overall uh to give kind of a pieces of advice of uh things I've learned along the way um like try new things test yourself ask for advice don't hesitate to reach out to other people and uh another one is uh and I think you you probably like relate to that very much because you do podcast um uh help helping others help you
1: yes so yes don't absolutely always,
0: like I think there's kind of a general view that, uh, uh, you know, people in like fall into three categories. There's like a uh, takers, there's givers, there's traders. Right. So you don't want to be, if you're a taker, people will, will kind of get annoyed by you quite quickly. Shut
1: you out. Uh, yeah.
0: in particular, uh, givers will hate you
2: <laughs> or, or traders,
0: traders will hate you. Um, but so givers, they give, they give, but if, if you're too much of a giver, you end up being exploited and you don't yeah. get anything for your efforts. You don't want to be either a pure trader because you sound too calculated. So you want to find right. this kind of a happy spot where you you're kind of give to most people, but then if you feel you're being exploited, then you stop giving, or you yeah. go careful. And what's beneficial to give is that you don't know when people are able to help you, uh, and the more people you help, you create some kind of good karma uh with those people, but also with people who see your general attitude. That's so cool. I've had so many, so many times people coming to me because they saw me do something for somebody else. Right. And they, then they realized that, oh, at some point, I kind of was like in need of something, of some help or some contact. And they would just, you know, volunteer it uh, out of the blue because they, they felt that my attitude was right.
2: Yeah.
0: So yeah. I think it's really important to cultivate that attitude. And it, uh, another thing to keep in mind is that even when you're starting your career and you, have, you feel you have nothing to give, actually, you do have a lot to give. Uh, for example, uh, let's say you go to an event and you don't know anybody. One mm-hmm. thing you could do if you knew people would be to introduce people or to help them. Um, One so, another, yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know anybody, what do you do? Well, first, you go to people and you ask them, hey, what are you here for? What are you looking for? And then you listen. Already it's something and it you know um, gets them happy to discuss what they're interested in rather than feeling that you're trying to sell something to them.
2: Yeah. And yeah. then
0: as you go along and talk to more people, you can say, Hey, I just met this guy, he's looking for what you have. You guys should talk. And you can create value really literally out of thin air, just by gathering right there. information yeah. about what and I think that's uh, that's a general attitude of you can even just bring in yourself you can actually bring a lot to the table.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And especially at the very beginning, there are so many uh, startups and uh, young founders that go into business and they, you know, shut themselves out and they shy away and they, you know, they're not really building network or they are not contributing enough. And in Russia, uh, we have a saying uh, which goes, uh, for the first three years, you work on your reputation. For the rest of your life, reputation works Ah. for you right so so your first 3 years in business or in any new country or let's say you've just moved places it can be 3 years it can be a year depending on the effort you put in but basically at the very beginning you work for your reputation but the rest of your life that reputation works for you so never forget that it's, uh, my uh, it's l- interesting
0: yeah
2: yeah my my I, uh, my I, last, actually uh-huh. one thing
0: Uh, Sorry, uh, one thing I'd like to add on that is that, yes, um, building the network, ideally not just meeting people, but finding a way to help them or to understand clearly what they do and what they need is really key. And another thing that's really important is uh, is effective uh, communication. So this is one of the most underrated skills. And I used to be, like I think many young people, like very shy, was really afraid of public speaking, really afraid of like speaking my mind and everything. Yeah. this is something you, you gotta fix. Like everyone, everyone gotta fix that. And it's not so hard to fix. And it's really important. How to important.
1: fix that? How to fix that?
0: Well, one, one kind of easy thing to get started is, let's say, try to reach out to people you're interested in and try to have coffee with them. Number one. Yeah. Uh, because that's kind of one on one. Then as yeah. you start building, you can also uh, orga- decide to organize some event. It's not complicated. It could be like a little meetup in some place. It's incredibly easy to do. Um, like it's uh, That also gets you kind of closer to the stage because you'll be probably the one kind of introducing the event. But it's yeah. not about you. And then as you yeah. start building some expertise, you can start talking about it. And there's nothing easier than talking about things you know. Uh, one thing you need to work on is just the flow of your ideas and trying to make them uh, concise to the point so that uh, you don't kind of ramble forever. And that will make you a more effective communicator, a more confident communicator And that's the key difference between two people with, you know, technical skills is how effective you are at communicating what you're doing. And also for for entrepreneurs, it's absolutely critical. Absolutely critical.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I totally agree with you that uh, communication is such an essential skill uh, in business. And communicating to your team is important, of course, to your partners and other stakeholders, but also communicating to your community, You know, to other influencers and as a next step, becoming a thought leader yourself or some people call it, you know, personal branding. Others call it thought leadership. But that is something that everyone in business must do, Uh, be it starting a podcast Mm -hmm. or vlog or start writing a blog or recording videos on LinkedIn. It does not matter what you do. But if you are not into this thought leadership right now, in 10 years, you're going to be uh, you know, you're competing to uh, thousands others in your industry and you're going to regret that because that's where the whole world is moving. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, and that's something I recommend actually to all the founders of startups that go through our program. I say, you, you're such a small company. You have no money. You have no power. Th- you need visibility and you need to be known for being smart and to know your stuff. The easiest thing you can do is probably... Put together like a ten slides ten slides deck with like the ten most important things in your category, like uh, I don't know ten trends ten trends in baby tech, ten trends in uh, home furnishing, ten trends in whatever. Just put that online, and that becomes a little bit of a of a gift, and a little bit of a visit of a of a visit a business card that you can give to people um, that provide value for free. And that shows that you actually care about an
1: expert and understand
0: your market. So it establishes you gradually as an expert. I've seen that when I was running my consultancy, we're a really small team in Beijing and we're just a few people, but we had incredible visibility because we're putting online a lot of presentations that got hundreds of thousands of views for some of them. So and when I joined hacks, I, I told them the same. I said, look guys, like you have some deal flow, you're doing really good stuff, but until we get like the best visibility for being the experts, uh, we won't get access to the best companies in the world. And it doesn't yeah. matter if we see a thousand companies, if we don't have the, the 10 best in the world, I don't care about the other thousand. So yeah. I think it's, uh, it's really important for founders, um, to, uh, to be visible, to be recognized as experts in their field, uh, talk to media, publish things, write articles, uh, write blogs. Tweet, uh, be part of the conversation, and show and like accumulate and share expertise is what uh, gives you a voice.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, we are absolutely at the same page. I've got two other short questions before we wrap up. Mm -hmm. Um, Firstly, what is your favorite startup? It can be one of those startups that you in hacks invested at, or it can be something completely uh, different that you wish you invested at.
0: Uh, well, one I wish I invested in uh, is uh, Ninebot. The guy's doing the, the mini Segway. Uh, ah. so Tell they us. Really not, not
1: everybody is aware of the company, perhaps. Tell the listeners yes. what is it about.
0: So people might know the, the hoverboards because they were in the news like a couple of years ago for exploding. Um, but people also <laughs> know Segway. Well, this company called Ninebot, they do personal mobility, mobility vehicles that are extremely reliable. Actually, kind of mini Segway you control with your knees. They also yeah. have like the one wheel things. And they actually acquired Segway, uh, about two or three years ago, two years ago, I think. Um, yeah. and they actually now own the brand and it's a, they make fantastic products. I think it's one of the, the Chinese companies that will become a global household name. And it's part of this next wave of, uh, innovative Chinese companies, uh, alongside with DJI. So this one is like not a hacks company, but I wish uh, we had a, we had had some invested uh, some in invest that. In oh my that.
1: goodness. And I wish that Hong Kong would allow uh, uh, people yeah. actually use Segway here in Hong Kong. I'm so frustrated every time I'm in Singapore and I see those happy people on the little, yep. uh, you know, yep. or in mm, Paris,
0: Paris, mm, London, you see it everywhere. Exactly.
1: You see it everywhere. But I mean, in Europe, it's more difficult because half of the year you cannot use it because of the bad weather and winter and uh-huh. all whatnot. But I mean, Hong Kong would be yes. such a perfect place, but it's not allowed.
0: Uh, yes. I'll mention a couple more companies. Uh, so another one that's actually part of the Hacks portfolio called MakeBlock, based in Shenzhen, doing oh, robots I love for education. Them. So they, I they have over 500 staff now, they're selling internationally, and I think it's also part of that wave. I think they've done a fantastic job. That was one of the very first Hacks investments, and they're doing very well. Um, yeah, I the spoke last with one Jason I just mention. the other day. Oh, okay. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's a fantastic CEO. The yep. funny thing, maybe, is that if, if this same, if this company was coming to us today with early prototypes, probably we wouldn't, we wouldn't invest in them. The reason Why is, is that, that when they start, because at that time, five, six years ago, STEM was very new and it was the right time. Today, STEM is crowded and you have competitors like MakeBlock that are gig, that are already giant. So if you start today with a similar product, you probably don't have, you won't be able to build a market easily. But yeah. in their case, because they started five, six years ago, they're in a fantastic position. And yeah. the last company I wanted to mention, just to illustrate uh, some cool stuff we're doing in health tech, is a Swedish company called Flow Neuroscience. Um, yeah. They make uh, a device that you put on your head that uh, basically does brain stimulation to treat depression. Does wow, it this is,
1: really work?
0: It does. It's a proven technique called transcranial direct stimulation. It's a validated and certified technique in, uh, in Europe and uh, um, soon in, uh, in the U.S. Um, and it's, it's absolutely fantastic. So it doesn't treat the causes of depression, but definitely treats the symptoms. So I think it is part of that new wave of devices that actually heal people in addition to just tracking things. And yeah. we call those uh wear-a-peutics, just like a wearable therapeutic, wearable <laughs> therapies and i think it's uh it's one of the really exciting fields um in uh in hardware that's uh, that's developing it's combining that's... you know psychology neuroscience electronics machine learning. It's really fantastic.
1: All the hot things on one plate. This is so fascinating. Uh, Benjamin, thank you so much again for being with us. Uh, I learned so much and I'm sure all our listeners are completely overwhelmed in a positive way with the amount of information sharing and value that you have delivered. Thank you so much for this fantastic chat.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: And to all our listeners, thanks so much for staying with us for this hour. Don't forget to subscribe to Ashley Talks podcast and make sure that every Wednesday you are checking more podcasts. We have more fantastic speakers coming up. Share out and make sure your friends subscribe as well. Chat soon.
0: You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.